0: you're still here, that means you're not a child. So get your Bible out. We're in Philippians chapter one. We're going to look at verses 27 through 30 this morning. We're preaching our way through the book of Philippians. Paul, the greatest apostle who ever lived, wrote two thirds of the New Testament. His epistles form the bulk of our Christian theology as New Testament church. He's in chains. He's under house arrest. He's being moved around, making a defense of the faith. The Roman guards are with him. He's lost his liberty, yet he writes the epistle of joy to the Philippians, preparing them uh, to stand uh, and preach the gospel and live the gospel in his absence. So as we uh, jump in today, we're going to look at verses 27 through 30. And let me just thank God for the word and we'll jump right in. Father, we thank you this morning that we can come as brothers and sisters in this place and worship you together. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you move in our midst and you touch us and you restore us and you heal us as we worship. Father, we trust that you've prepared good ground in our hearts to receive the word this morning. So Holy Spirit, continue to move upon us and allow the treasures and the gems and the principles of your word to leap off the page and become real to us, that we would not be hearers only, but doers of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. And the church said... Amen. Philippians 1, starting in verse 27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In no way, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you and that to you from God. For to you, it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. So Paul is speaking to this church that he loves. He's planted this church. He's raised up leadership for it. He's ministered to them. He's taught them everything he knows about the gospel to strengthen them. And he knows he's eventually going to be heading towards martyrdom, and he wants to prepare them to serve God and to carry the gospel in his absence. You know, the older we get, we have to realize it's not about us. It's about passing the baton to the next generation. There comes a point in all of our lives where, you know, we've crested the hill, if you know what I mean. I'm not saying you're over the hill or maybe you see the crest of the hill. Maybe you're so far down the hill you, can't, you don't even know you're on a hill. But at some point we have to come to the place where I need to be thinking how to pass the baton here so that, you know, when I'm gone, the gospel is well taken care of and it's preached and it's authenticity and it's accurate. And uh, what we leave behind for the next generation is solid theology and an example to follow. And Paul, being faithful and having all this joy, he wants to make sure the church is prepared. In verse 27, he tells them, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Whenever I read a text like this, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of your calling or of the gospel. When the scripture says that, I always think of the military because I know in the military, if you're an officer, there's a code of conduct. And if you violate that code, you can be convicted in a military court of conduct unbecoming of an officer because they have a moral code. They have an ethical code. They, they, they have, you know, responsibility and authority and all of these things. And I think in some ways as Christians, we need to understand we as believers have a moral code, have an honor code, have a call to integrity that God should be able to look at us and say, you're walking in a manner worthy of your calling, worthy of the gospel. Least we be convicted that we are not living up to what God has called us to be. So Paul is saying, conduct yourselves, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Uh, You know, now, whether we like it or not, people judge Christianity by Christians. Can I get an Amen. The, they judge Christianity by, uh, you know, Christians. They judge the church by its members. They judge Jesus by those who say they follow him. Now, isn't that a sobering thought for a second that someone might look at me or you and say, well, you know, by the way they live, that's what I think about Jesus. You know, and all of us in our humility and, and our frailty would say, look, don't look at me. You know, I don't point people to me. I point people to Jesus. Don't look at me. We're not trying to make you like me. We're we're trying to make you like Jesus, amen. Uh, But in in some ways, we're the only Bible that other people are going to read. We're the only gospel. They might not come to church. They might not crack a Bible, but they're going to see us live. And they're going to judge Christianity by the way Christians live. Now, as a Christian, as Christians, you and I represent the faith to everyone outside of it. Inside the body of Christ, when we fail, we falter, or we have a bad day, we have grace for each other. Because we know that that happens to all of us, amen? Did you, ever, did you ever just have a bad day? Man, one day you wake up, and you just love everybody. You just, you got grace, and you're just like with a grace hose, and you're just, everybody gets it. And the next day you get up, and you're like one shopping cart in the spot you were trying to pull in, and you are off the hook. Beep. My wife used to beep at shopping carts and my father-in-law asked her, Well, did it move? And as far as we know, it didn't. But all of us have good days and bad days. All of us give grace and need grace at times. But the world looks and they, and they just flat out judge. No, if that's what a Christian is, if that's what the church is, if that's what you believe. No, and they judge. And they, in many ways, they'll use it as an excuse as why not to be involved with Jesus? Why not to be involved in church? Now, we know that that's not wrong and we know it's not what we want, but the reality is people will judge us and they'll judge the church by us and they judge Christ by his followers. How many people have seen that movie, The Princess Bride. Come on, that's required watching for Christians. There's a part in that where Wesley's climbing up a mountain and he's climbing a rope, if you remember, and he's taking a long time. And the the guy at the top says, I'll I'll help you up. I give you my word as a Spaniard. And Wesley says, I'm sorry, I've known too many Spaniards. In in many ways, that's the way it is. Well, I'm a Christian. Well, I'm sorry, I've known too many Christians. I know too many people who say, you can trust me, I'll never do this, I'll never do that, only to be disappointed by that. So in many ways, we have to uh, realize we're ambassadors for Christ. I knew a pastor who used to counsel people, and and they would confess all kinds of bad stuff that they were doing. he'd say, do me a favor, don't tell people you're a Christian. That's not what you want to hear when you're getting counseled. But uh, the reality is people look and they judge and it's a heavy responsibility for us. And Paul says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Now, Paul is demanding that the Philippians uh, discipline themselves and maintain their spiritual integrity. Say integrity. You know. He wants them to discipline themselves. He wants them to maintain their integrity. And they want. he wants them to do the right things whether he's there or not. Look what he says here. Whether I come to you and see you or remain absent. What's Paul saying? He's Paul saying is, look, don't just behave when I'm there. Don't just do the right thing when I'm there. When I'm not there, you've got to do the right things. You've got to have integrity. You know, in many ways, the church has to... Uh, have people that will, you know, have integrity and do the right things. Why? Because Jesus is coming back for a church without spot or wrinkle. But, you know, while we're kind of here on our own with the Holy Spirit trying to police us, uh, a, a lot of people don't live with integrity. And Paul's demanding it of them. He says, whether I come to you, look, don't just behave when I'm there, when I'm absent, do the right things. Now, Paul knew and we should know that there'll always be two groups of people in the church. There'll be spiritually immature babies, and there'll be spiritually mature adults. And you would think, well, we should all be adults. No, we all start off as babies. There's always going to be, if the church is doing the right thing, preaching the gospel and making converts, we're going to have spiritual babies in the church, amen? Come on, say amen to that. It's a good thing. If there's no growth, if there's no life, if there's no conversion in the church, if there's no babies, if there's no young Christians, if there's no young people, that's a sign that something's wrong in the church. As a pastor, I've been around to some of these churches where it's all old people. Everybody's hair is blue. There's no youth group. There's no children. There's no nothing. And and you know God bless them, you love them, and you minister into them. But you realize unless that changes, and I've seen this, the churches eventually close down. You say, well, what happened? They died, and there was no one to carry on the mantle. So there has to be integrity. There's always going to be babies, and there should be spiritual adults. Now, babies are allowed to be babies when they're babies. If you're an infant and you're wearing diapers and you need constant attention, that's fitting, amen. But if you're 30 years old in the Lord and you're still wearing diapers and you need constant supervision. Some people's eyes are like, I didn't tell you to picture it in your head. Just listen to what I'm saying. We need to grow up. At some point, you know, I mean, if, if you if you when your children are growing up, the, those babies and then they're toddlers and then they're, you know, teenagers. And it's all beautiful. The whole process is. But, you know, you got a 30 year old living in your basement and he's like, mom, you didn't make my bed. Something's got to change. So let's look at the two groups today, spiritual babies Babies need constant supervision Uh, as we all know babies are not self-sustaining they're not independent and they're not productive if you leave a baby alone for a couple hours and come in and say well what have you done with these hours have you produced anything maybe in their diaper they produce something but that's it okay so babies are not productive they need constant attention and care and so do immature believers You know, if you need people to watch you uh, and and make sure you're doing the right things and just constantly be on you and constant accountability, and and you've been around 10, 20, 30 years, something needs to change in your walk with God. There needs to be a a, a self-policing there at some point. Those who are in need of constant spiritual supervision are at best immature and at worst unconverted. Unconverted. You know, there are some people who sit in the church and never get born again. There are some people that sit in churches their whole life and never surrender themselves to Jesus and have uh, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and a change inside their heart. Now, it's pretty hard to sit at full gospel and stay in that condition for too long. Amen. Because the Spirit of God will put a demand on you. Amen. Look, if if you refuse the Holy Spirit and to to grow up and to get born again and to use your gifts, you're not going to have fun here. You're eventually going to leave. But there are some churches where you can sit there your entire life and there's no demand and there's no conviction and there's no altar call and there's no regeneration and people are just spiritual, they're religious, and they're lost. Now, all of us need to grow up at some point. Because when you're old enough to be mature and you're still immature that you need supervision, it's an embarrassment. You know, I went to a music store once and they had a big uh, sign in the front window of the music store. It said, all drummers must be accompanied by an adult. (laughs) We like to pick on each other. But, you you know, uh, you and I need to grow up at some point. And. It's okay to start off as a baby, but it's not okay to stay a baby. Now, let's talk about the person who's unconverted. You know, some people just refuse the work of the Holy Spirit. They don't want to grow up. But some people don't grow up because they're not born again. Uh, If you've never accepted Jesus and let him be the Lord of your life, then it really becomes impossible to serve God and to become mature. Listen to what Romans 8, 6 through 8 says. Again, Paul writing for the mindset on the flesh is death but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace because the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards god see that that unconverted immature mind it's hostile look what it says for it does not subject itself to the law of god for it is not even able to do so and those who are in the flesh cannot please god If you and I refuse to be born again and be converted, not just spiritual, not just church attenders, not just religious, but converted, then we're still in the flesh. And our flesh will not serve God. It will serve itself. It's impossible. So we're never going to become mature. We're constantly going to be flesh-minded babies. If a person is converted, but refuses to allow the Holy Spirit to bring them maturity, they're going to need constant attention, constant correction, constant supervision. You know, I found out with people who don't want to do the right things, there's not enough people around to watch them. Have you ever been around somebody that wants to get in trouble, wants to do the wrong thing? Oh, I mean, you could have a team of people. You could have a security detail. You could have satellites watching them. And still, uh, excuse me for a minute, they go, and they'll get in trouble. There's not enough people in the world to keep someone in line who doesn't want to be in line. And Paul knew, guys, if you can't do the right things when I'm not there, when I'm not there, you're not going to do the right things. Paul knew he wasn't going to be here forever. He was headed toward martyrdom, and eventually the Romans did, you know, behead him and kill him. But understand something, uh, that he was, as a loving father, looking at his spiritual sons and daughters and saying, you need to have a level of integrity to do the right things when I'm gone because I'm going to be gone soon. I want you to see the love here and the joy here that he pours himself out to bring these people to maturity, not leaving them babies, but having them become spiritual mature. Let's talk a little bit about spiritual adults. Spiritual adults do the right thing when nobody's looking. Let me see that again. Spiritual adults do the right thing when nobody's looking. We should be the exact same person as we are in front of everyone in public that we are behind closed doors. That's integrity. Integrity is being the same exact person, you know, that you see in public, that you see on the altar, that you see in church on Sunday as they are on Monday or behind closed doors, Integrity is a powerful, important thing, and it is a rarity in these days. Many people can put on a good performance and act like they're doing the right things with the right heart, but then behind closed doors, it's a mess and it's a disaster, and they're a fraud. We've seen it in politicians. We've seen it in leaders. We've seen it in the church. Amen. It's quiet, but this is... You know, this is not an indictment against anyone, but this is just the reality of human nature. If we refuse to grow up spiritually, then we're not going to have integrity and we're not going to be mature. Uh, Integrity means I'm the same person that I am in front of you as I am when no one's around. Let's talk about integrity a little bit because it's vital and it's rare. So ask yourself, do I consistently make the right choices in life? You know, all of us sin, all of us make poor choices, but for the mature believer, that should be the exception and not the rule. That should be an anomaly, and we shouldn't be doing the same things over and over again wrong. That shows we're unconverted. Come on this morning, Full Gospel Center. It might hurt a little bit, but it'll set you free if you embrace it. We shouldn't be saved for 10, 20, 30 years still struggling with the same sexual sin, with the same pornography, with the same gossip, with the same drug addiction. There should be something that breaks loose in our lives where it proves that the Son has set us free. So do we consistently make right choices as a pastor, as a leader I can't surround myself with perfect people, but I want to surround myself with people that I can depend on, that I know when I'm not there, you'll make the right choice and do the right thing. The way I raised my sons, I raised them to be men that I could depend on, that they could stand with me shoulder to shoulder, carry their load, do the right thing, make the right choices. When I see my sons Uh, uh, grown into men making right choices when I see my oldest being a man and stepping forward that I can rely on nothing makes my heart melt as a father more than seeing them step up and be godly men so realize we've got to make the right choices even when no one's looking number two do I need to be watched at all times to be productive Come on, some of us work with people like that. If the boss is not there, they go on, you know, autopilot. They're they're leaning on the shovel. They they've they've perfected it. They can sleep in the car. Productivity as a Christian is vital. Why? Because we're supposed to produce fruits. We're supposed to make converts. It's not just me living and enjoying my life and my liberty and, you know, enjoying all the benefits and the gifts and the... No, you and I are supposed to spiritually reproduce ourselves. So we've got to be productive uh, even when no one's looking. And, And, you know, that's the sign of immaturity that you have to be hawked over to do the right things. What an exhausting thing for someone else to have to lord over another person to get them to do the right thing. Paul was feeling some of this with some of these believers in these churches. Man, when he wasn't there, they were just out of control. Some of them were trying to subvert the ministry. Some of them were introducing heresy. They had the Judaizers that were trying to bring the law back in. They had these other preachers who were trying to get Paul out of the way so they could be apostles. Let's not romanticize the church. It's always been full of people, and it's always had issues. But... Doing the right thing when no one's looking, making the right choices, being productive without being watched. These are the signs of integrity. You know, and you and I need to understand the importance of integrity in our lives and in the lives of those around us. Until we understand its importance, we're never going to sacrifice properly to obtain it. A lot of people don't know this, but President Teddy Roosevelt Before he was a president and in politics, he was, among other things, a cattle rancher. He operated a a cattle ranch, and and he he was, you know, in the cattle business. Now, while out on the range one day with one of his wranglers, he lassoed, the, the cowboy did a maverick steer, and he began to build a fire to brand it. Now, the pasture that they were in at that time was claimed by Greg Lang, one of Roosevelt's neighbors. And according to the cattleman's rule, the steer belonged to Lang. Now, the cowboy took the brand out of the fire and was about to apply Roosevelt's brand to that steer. And he said, wait a minute, that should be Lang's brand. You're putting my brand on it. And the cowboy winked at him and said, don't worry, boss. No one will know. Roosevelt said, drop that iron. Go back to the ranch, get your stuff out of the bunkhouse, and get out. You can't work for me, because if you steal for me, you'll steal from me. Amen? Now, there's a guy who understood integrity. Integrity is doing the right thing when nobody's... Well, nobody's going to know. Doesn't the devil always tell you when he's trying to get you to do something stupid? No one's going to know. And while he's trying to trick you, he's getting all the blabbermouths he has on his team to get ready to let everybody know what you did. Oh, no one's going to know. It's just be, you know, it, it's just, oh, just don't worry. God will forgive you. No one will know. God knows. We know. And eventually all the things we do in secret will be shouted from the rooftop. So everybody's going to know on judgment day. Everyone's going to know all those things that we did that we thought we could get away with. Have mercy. Spiritual adults have integrity. They understand the importance of integrity. They do the right things when no one's looking. They make the right choices just because it's the right thing to do. Now, the last part of verse 27 gives us three keys to establishing order and unity in the body of Christ. Order and unity is important in the church. We strive very much as leadership here to have unity in the church, to have order in our church services. We can have liberty, but we need to do all things decently and in order. That's why we have structure. That's why we have, you know, you you don't just get to come up and kick over the pulpit and grab the mic and talk for 20 minutes. Amen? Don't try that. I'll hurt you in front of everybody. There's structure. There's order. And that keeps the body of Christ safe. Now, there are three things in the last half of 27, and I want you to listen to them here, uh, that will give us unity and order, which is so important. He says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel so that whether I come to see you or remain absent, I will hear about you that, listen, you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So there were the three keys tucked right in there. The first is to stand firm. Paul said, when I show up, I want want to see you all standing firm. You know, I want to be able to come and give you a surprise inspection and everybody passes because you have integrity and you're doing the right things. So people will respect those who stick to their guns, even when they don't agree with them. You know, Christian, the world will respect you if you stick to your principles and your values and your morality, even if they don't agree with you. They might think you're crazy. They might think you're foolish. They might think you're antiquated. But the truth is, if you stand firm and don't waver, it's going to be a testimony to people who don't agree with us. The problem is the church has been so pliable, so flexible, so spineless, so accommodating that we've walked away from the truth of the gospel and now the world sees no value in it. So we've got to stand firm. We've got to learn to be steadfast. Now, learn to be steadfast without being stubborn. If you're stubborn today, that's not a spiritual gift. Steadfast, having integrity. Do I stand firm doctrinally? Do I stand firm morally? Or do people see me as, you know, uh, compromised at times? Uh, when I'm disappointed, when I'm persecuted, how do I respond? Do I shrink back? Do I, do I walk away from the things of God or do I stand firm? It was important for Philippians to be able to stand firm because Paul would soon be martyred. And, and he knew that they would have to learn this lesson before his departure and so in love, he teaches them to stand firm. Number two, the second key to order and unity in the body of Christ is this, having one spirit and one mind. You know, everyone in here has a preference and opinion that's different than everyone else's. Well, I like this, and I like that, and I think we should do this, and I think we should do that, and I like this kind of music, and I like this kind And listen, we can all have preferences and opinions, but in the end, God has to have His way at Full Gospel Center. Amen. <laughs> uh, you know, you'll think, "Well, if you're the pastor, you get to do what you want." No, you don't. I can't even preach what I want. Somebody says you should preach on this, and I go to the Lord, and He says, "No, <laughs> preach this." And I'm like, "Oh, I'm se- I'm serious. I don't it, look when I'm going through the Word. If it's if it's me and it's not Him, the Holy Spirit checks me." Come on, Pastor Mike. Right? I, this is the way I feel like boom on my chest. The boom. Here comes the boom, and I know that you know that I can't do that all my life. God has led me that way. So we have to have God's mind, God's spirit, God's agenda, God's will for Full Gospel Center. You know what the problem with many organizations and some churches? There's too many chiefs and not enough Indians. You know, everybody can't get their way. Everyone can't have their preference. Well, if I don't go this way, I've had people tell me, if you don't start this ministry, I'm leaving the church. And I said, could you leave now? Because God didn't tell me to do that. If you don't let us do this in worship, we're leaving the church. If you don't let me, you prophesy in the church, we're leaving the church. Guess what? They've all left because it's not my way, it's not your way, it's not their way, it's got to be God's way. One mind and one spirit. Prioritize unity, avoid division, and be kingdom-minded. That's the way you have one spirit and one mind. I'm so glad when we do it God's way. Number three, the third key is what? To strive together. See what it says there? Striving together For the faith of the gospel. So, uh, you know, when we stand firm and then we have the mind of the spirit of God and we we have unity, then we can strive together. And that word strive in the Greek is sunathiko, sunathiko. And it means this. This kind of shocked me when I got the definition of this word. It means to labor together. And the second half says, or to wrestle together for something. You see, we, when we're working together and wrestling together against the common enemy to overcome the darkness in this world, when we're wrestling together, then we, we'll overcome the world, amen? But listen, most of the time, the church wrestles itself. And we, we wrestle against each other. It doesn't say to wrestle each other. <laughs> we're supposed to have unity. We spend more time in the church fighting with one another. That's why we're so fragmented. That's why we have so many different denominations. That's why we have this church and that church and Methodist and Episcopal and Baptist and First Baptist and Second Baptist. And thir- I, I, we, just, we just keep fragmenting the body. Now, look, I understand ice cream comes in many different flavors and variety can be okay. Thank God that there's not just vanilla. You got the Holy Ghost when I said that, didn't you? Amen. <laughs> Me too, I, got, I felt the tingles, amen. Imagine if you went to the ice cream store, what size vanilla would you want? I want vanilla, I want Rocky Road, I want cookie dough, I want, I want chocolate, triple chocolate, 15 chocolate with hunks of chocolate with chocolate syrup on top and chocolate sprinkles. You ever had one of those days? So it's, it's wrestling against a common enemy, sunathakos. So understand we are to strive. Now, we've all worked with people who work with us. Have you ever been on a team or in a, uh, you know, maybe a department at a business or, you know, work in a small business and you had a good group of people? Maybe you are in the military and your unit. You had unit cohesion and you, you just were, you had one mind and, and that was an awesome experience. Anyone work on a team that was unified and all together? Amen. A couple hands going up. Praise God. So that, you know, is an awesome thing when people all work together. We've all had people who work with us. Now, that's exciting because we push the proverbial envelope, and there's a synergy that takes place there, and we're productive, and it's exciting. How many know when the church is in unity and we're doing the will of God, we're going to see fruit that's exciting? Amen? If you're bored in church, if you're bored serving God, jump in the water's good get involved use your gifts stop sitting on the outside and being critical or saying it's not big enough or good enough or i'm too talented listen we'll work you in we'll figure out how to deal with that but you know get involved and do your part and be excited about what god's doing amen let's work together let's wrestle together let's fight together and push back the gates of hell Now, on the other side of the coin, we've all worked with people who worked against us. Now, raise your hand if you ever worked with people. Come on, more hands going up for this one. This is the common thing. We've worked with people. Before I was in ministry, before I got married, those I was serving under, they told me to take some time off out of Bible school. Don't go right into the ministry. And I worked some jobs. I worked night crew at Pepsi. I was a fork truck driver. I drove trucks for a while, and then I moved furniture. And I'll never forget moving furniture. I moved furniture in the inner city in Rochester. In some places that, man, if you got the, if you got the ticket signed and you made it back and there were no bullet holes in your clothes, you had a good day. So I'll never forget working with some partners You'd have a guy, and it was always these people would order these queen sleeper sofas, pull out beds that were 350 pounds, and they were always on the ninth floor, and the service elevator never worked, Ray. Ray. So now I'm dragging this thing up these stairs, and I either got a guy on that side who's right with me, with the right balance, right height, we are thinking, we're grabbing, and it works good, or I got somebody on the other side that I got to drag the sofa, and I got to drag them, and I got to drag their family behind them and the things they ate last week. And, and by the time you get to the top, man, they beat you up. Yeah. I'll never forget what it's like working with somebody that's working against you. You get the ticket signed. you throw them out the window. Go back to the truck, right? Six stories down. Tough to work with someone who's working against you. We want to work together at Full Gospel Center. We want to work together for the kingdom purposes of God in Dutchess County. We want to work together to see people saved and set free and brought into relationship with Jesus Christ. Synathical wrestle together against the common foe verse 28 informs us that we're going to have opponents there again paul's being very honest with them he's not trying to sugarcoat anything a lot like jesus did jesus would warn his disciples and they would just ignore what he was saying or if they he finally forced them to listen somebody speak up like peter and say they'll never take you alive and jesus would be like get behind me satan you know the whole deal Verse 28 says this, in no way alarmed by your opponents. So we're not to be alarmed by our opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, that too from God. So he's saying, look, Paul's saying, you're going to have a lot of people who oppose you, but here's the bottom line on all of it. Don't be alarmed by any of your opponents. Now, I I, want to... I want to look at that for a second and say, you know what, Paul, some opponents are alarming. Some opponents should scare the heck out of you. If they lock you in a cage and they open the door and on the other side, Mike Tyson steps out, even at his age now, you're in trouble. Don't kid yourself. No, I think I take Mike now. He's a little old. He lost a step. No, you're going to get beat. So Paul's saying, you know, don't be alarmed by your opponents. That's like telling a frantic person, just calm down. Your wife is hysterical. Just calm down. Try that. Try that and take pictures. The worst thing you could tell someone when they're scared or when they're frantic or when they're coming unglued is to calm down. And Paul's saying, you know... Just don't worry about your opponents. Well, you know, why would he say something like that? Surely he understands what what I'm trying to articulate about this. But listen, stop and think for a second. What kind of opponent would cause you no alarm? The type of opponent that could never hurt you. If you were in that same ring and the door opened up and they threw a toddler in in diapers, you'd be like, oh, I could take him. You're not gonna be alarmed by that little guy little toddler, you know what I mean? Even a thick one, even you know it looks like he's got some good muscle tone. You know, the belly sticking out. See toddlers? I ain't afraid of no toddlers. So the type of opponent that can never hurt us is the type of opponent we cannot be alarmed by. See, we need to see with our spiritual eyes, everything about the kingdom of darkness is that little toddler. It can't hurt us. That kingdom is defeated. Jesus broke the power of it. He took the keys of death, hell, and the grave. He triumphed over them publicly. You and I, as children of God, blood-brought Christians under the blood with the authority of Jesus Christ, have no business being afraid of our opponents. And I know sometimes it seems like wickedness prevails and evil wins. But in the end, evil is defeated already. We need to have the right perspective. I don't want you to be alarmed by your opponents. None of them are capable of hurting us. Paul wanted the Philippians and us to know that those who oppose us are actually no threat to us and they are only proving that they're lost and we're found. Did you see what it said here? If if we can just grab a hold of what's being said here, it's really going to change our perspective. In no way alarmed by your opponents, listen, which is a sign for them Uh, of what? Destruction, but salvation for you. They're just proving that they're lost, and, and you're my child, and that's why they're opposing you. Do you know why people, you know, you've met people and they find out you're a Christian and immediately they've got an attitude towards you. They don't like you. They get passive aggressive with you. They start making, throwing digs at you. Oh, you Christians. Oh, you guys believe in this. And, and, they, and they make fun of you. Oh, you guys pray to a wizard in the sky. Have you heard that stuff? I can't wait till they stand before him the wizard and see that he's the king of kings and the lord of lords and they have to bow the knee. Amen. People mock, and they mock, and, they, and they'll say, oh, you know, you, you know, and all it is is it's proving that they're lost, and they're blind, and they need to be saved. And the very fact that they're coming after you proves that you're a child of God, and you're a threat to the kingdom of darkness. Come on this morning. So don't be alarmed by your opponents. Understand it's just revealing they need to be saved and pray for their salvation. Don't... Listen, there are going to be people say things and do things and try and hurt us. And, and the mature thing to do is to pray for their salvation. Because, you know, in the final analysis, they're blind and they're being manipulated by the enemy. And God doesn't want anyone to be lost. So pray for your enemies. Pray for your opponents. Pray for those who oppose you and love them and live the gospel out in front of them and have integrity and show unity and show love to the world. Verse 29 through 30 brings this whole thing in for a landing here, and it, it comes as a warning. Uh, there again, Paul's being very frank. He's not sugarcoating anything. For to you, it is granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, Paul's saying, you know, you believe in Jesus, but also to suffer on his behalf, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. So Paul closes this down. He's trying to sober them up. And he warns them. He says, you know what? If you follow Jesus, you're going to have opposition. We talked about that. There's going to be suffering and there's going to be conflicts. Now, opposition, suffering, and conflicts is not anything that we usually get excited about. Amen. And it's funny as I read that I just hear everybody just kind of. "Ah." And it's because we don't desire these things. We don't wake up in the morning and go, man, I hope I have a lot of conflicts today. Yesterday was rough, but I, I know it can be worse. So let's see what. No, we, we just want to live peaceably. Amen. And enjoy our lives and love people. And, and we don't want trouble. We don't want conflict. We don't want suffering. But that's part of the Christian experience because it was part of Jesus' experience. Our devotion to Jesus will bring all the things I just mentioned into play. Our faith is proven. When we suffer with Christ, now listen to First Peter four, twelve through fourteen. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. So Paul is saying, don't put your shocked face on when things are tough, when there's conflict. You know, we get all Macaulay Culkin. We're like, no, don't be surprised when what fiery ordeals among you? Uh, he, he says, which come. Upon you for your testing as though something strange were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of His glory, you may also rejoice and be overjoyed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Wow. Wow. We identify him with him in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. amen, we all want that resurrection power, but we've got to we've got to have a, a dying process in us where our flesh is crucified that's why water baptism is so important it's us publicly identifying with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection amen it's us identifying with him in suffering you know now listen if we suffer because we make bad choices or we sin or we just do wrong stuff, that's not redemptive suffering. There's two kinds of suffering. There's redemptive suffering and there's foolish suffering. And when we do stupid stuff and we suffer, that's foolish. But when we suffer because we're doing the right things, when people oppose us and malign us and talk bad about us, when it costs us jobs and opportunities because we're faithful to Jesus Christ, that's a blessing that carries an eternal reward. And it identifies us with Jesus. Our devotion to him will bring these things. We don't know what our faith will cost us, but we should count the cost. Some of us will maybe live peaceable, happy lives, never have much conflict, and die in our sleep. Others may be martyred. We need to count the cost of what it costs to serve Jesus. There's a cost to following Jesus, The world hated him, and the world will hate us. There's a cost to being a disciple. And I close with this. Just think how Jesus' 12 met their end. We know that Judas betrayed Jesus, and he was never really converted, but he hung himself. What an end that is, to have walked with Jesus, but to have never converted, to have a heart that was for him. It's like sitting in a church all your life, but never surrendering to Christ. John, uh, he died in Ephesus uh, of old age after he wrote the book of Revelation. But John was boiled in oil. They tried to kill him, and it didn't work. How many like to survive that? I'd be like, just let me die. No, John survives that, goes on to a a Roman penal colony and writes the book of Revelation. But he's the only one that died of old age. All the rest met a martyr's end. Peter was crucified upside down by the Roman governor Nero. Andrew was crucified in Acacia. Uh, James was thrown off the Temple Peak and beaten with clubs. Bartholomew was skinned alive in Armenia. James, the elder son of Zebedee, was beheaded in Jerusalem. Thomas was run through with spears in the East Indies. Philip was hanged against a pillar in Hermopolis. Thaddeus was shot to death with arrows. And Simon died on a cross in Persia. There's a cost to being a disciple. Some of us may never die a martyr's death, but there will always be a cost to following Jesus. And I want to say to you, without fear of contradiction, that whatever the cost is for me and the cost is for you, it's worth it. It's (laughs) worth it. Paul wanted them to do the right things, to have integrity, to not have to be watched, but to be spiritually mature. And we should desire that too. Let's bow our heads today. Father, I pray for each of us in the sound of my voice today, that we would grow up spiritually, that when we would come to maturity, that we would not stay babes and infants, that we would not live off of milk, but we'd learn to eat meat and be mature and spiritually productive, that we would spiritually reproduce ourselves in others. The Bible says, he who wins souls is wise, that we would devote our time and attention and our our gifts and our efforts to sharing the gospel with others. We've got friends and family and neighbors around us that we love, that should Jesus come back today, they would be lost for eternity. So Father, use us to walk in a way that's becoming of spiritual, mature people as those who carry the gospel and help us, Lord, to be unified and to have integrity in all things in Jesus' name, amen. Let's give him praise this morning. Thank you, Lord.